So I don't know whether we'll post this lesson or not. It's a very personal lesson, but I'll just record it anyway. So outline of what I want to talk about today. It's been a year since Chris died, and I want to talk about three things today. First thing is living with the last day of our life in mind. Just realizing how temporary and short our lives are and that they could be gone at any point in time. You know, uh, the year before Chris died, he, he had no clue. I don't think he had any clue. This was the last year of his life. So to, to keep our the day of our death in focus is one thing I want to talk about. The, other, the second thing is I want to talk about is what happens after we die? What do the scriptures say? And how do you fit the pieces together? You know, we, think, we know what the scriptures say, but how do the pieces all fit together? What really happens after we die? What should we expect? What did Jesus... So I want to start with what did Jesus teach about this? And then how did the apostles understand that? And then how did, how did their disciples, how did the early church understand? How did they put the pieces together? How do these things all fit? And then uh, just a few reflections on Chris's life and things that, that I benefited from from knowing Chris and particularly being close to Chris at the end of his life, too. So I want to talk about all these things today. And I want to start with uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, <coughs> uh, I'm going to read this verse from the from New King James, the, the, the Orthodox Study Bible is similar, but I, I like the way the New King James phrases it. Ecclesiastes in chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, or in some translations it will say good olive oil, all right? And the day of death, better than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So, you think about that. If somebody says, hey, we've got a party over here, and there's a funeral over there, and you're invited to both, which one do you want to go to? You say, oh, I definitely want to go to the funeral. That's, that's, uh, that's much better. Most people would think, no, I want to go to the party. I want to go to you celebrate and have fun, and people are happy. Who wants to go to some place where people are thinking about death and loss? And he says... The reason why it's better to go to the house in mourning, he says, because this is the end of all men. And when you're in the presence of death and when you're reflecting on death, it's a reminder that all of us are going to die. And he says, this is important. The people who are living just for pleasure and mirth and having fun, they're fools. So, so this is this is the important thing. So I, I want to take advantage of this as a time to reflect on Chris's death. And it brings with it some sadness and some loss and remembrance, remembrance uh, of what we don't have with us anymore. Uh, and, and at the same time, even though we're feeling sad, it says, Paul says, we don't mourn like others do. Okay, the Christian, the mourning, the idea of mourning and death for a Christian is, or or at least should be, different than how people who were who were in the world view it. Paul said, first First Thessalonians four in verses thirteen and fourteen, and later on we're going to read the whole section. But it's, it's, it's what he says right here: 
Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Of course, falling asleep is a figurative way of saying dying. For we... For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So he says that we don't mourn well while we feel the loss and the pain of that. We don't mourn the way that the rest of the world does because we just as we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that, that all those who've died in Christ will rise up as well. So there's a hope that goes along with the sadness that, that we feel. I, I, I was listening to a, a, a message where the speaker said, he said, 150,000 people die every day. I said, wow, that's pretty, that's an enormous number of people. All, when you take all the people all over the earth, 150,000 people die a day. And the point that, and the speaker turned around and said, and one day is going to be your day. So, so that, well, he's, it was a young guy, but it was, a, it was, it was kind of bracing. One day it's going to be yours. One, you're going to be one of the 150,000. One of these days. Um, so one day will be your last day. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, five years, ten years, twenty years from now. Or the other possibility is Jesus is going to come first, and you'll be one of those who were caught by surprise, uh, hopefully prepared. But uh, he says he'll come like a thief in the night, meaning no one's going to know. It's just going to happen. Boom. Um, taking everyone by surprise. So Now, some people have some warning in the face of their death. Chris had the benefit, he had the pain of going through an illness over a period of several months, but he also had a warning that this could be it. So he definitely, in his going back and forth in the hospital and the illnesses that he, that he was struggling with, he definitely had a sense that this could be the end, and it's one point in time that it was the end. He, he knew that. So, But that's not always the case. A lot of times it just happens, and we have no advance notice at all. So either way, we should be prepared at all times. <clears throat> so I want to start with uh, just this, the, first, the first thing I want to talk about, as I mentioned, is about thinking about the, the, the day of our own death and being prepared for that. Luke chapter 12, start with what Jesus said about that. Starting verse 13. And one of them from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like he's, he's, he's ready for retirement here. So. <laughs> but God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, 
nor about your body what you'll put on. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, which, <coughs> which have neither storehouses nor barns, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? If then you're not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. <clears throat> Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If this is then, uh, if then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is sown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you of you little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink or have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after and your father knows you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So this is, Jesus says here, seek first the kingdom. In Matthew he says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. It's the same thing. He says this, and this is, you know, I heard this scripture used in the past to advance an agenda, and I have to kind of separate this out. This is God's kingdom. This is not the agenda of any particular group. Or Matthew says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. He says, he says we need to be rich toward God, not toward ourselves. So you've got to go figure out what that means. And if you read the passage, I think it's pretty clear what he's talking about there. And he, he, uh, he goes on and he gives the story of the, we need, he says we need to be like the, uh, the people who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. He says with your, with your waist girded and your lamps lit, that as soon as he shows up, you're ready to welcome him. So he's making this point. You need to be ready. When he comes again, you need to be ready. Or if you die first, that the man who was taking care of himself but wasn't rich toward God, he wasn't taking care of his soul. It says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. So some at some day, one way or the other, God is going to say that to us. Either Jesus is going to return by surprise or God is going to say, your soul is required of you. Are you prepared for it? Because this man was not. Uh, there's a book that I've, I've mentioned before, Think Well on It, which is uh, a book, it's a very sober book, and it is 30 Meditations on Death. And it's by Richard Challoner, who lived 1691 to 1781, so he lived a long time ago, but the book is still printed and still read and still uh, still deeply convicting uh, people's lives. And so there's, there's so many great selections in here. I'm going to read one, and this is from... Uh, lesson number seven, or meditation number seven, called On Death. So this is, he, he pulls no punches here. <clears throat> so I'm going to read from this. And, and think about what Challoner is saying. He says, consider first, there is nothing more certain than death. It is appointed unto men to die once, and after this the judgment, that's Hebrews 9.27. The sentence is general. It is pronounced upon all the children of Adam. Neither wealth, nor strength, nor wisdom, nor all the power of this world can exempt anyone from this common doom. From the first moment of our birth, we are hastening toward our death. Every moment brings it near to us. The day will come, it will most certainly come, and God only knows how soon, when we shall never see the night. Or the night will come, 
when we shall never see the morning. The time will most certainly come when thou, my soul, must bid a long farewell to this cheating world and to all that you have admired therein. Even to your own body, the individual companion of your life, and take your journey to another country where all that you have set a value upon will there appear as smoke. Learn then to despise this miserable world and all its enjoyments, which with you must part so soon, whether you will or not. Consider secondly, that as nothing is more certain and inevitable than death, so nothing is more uncertain than the time, the place, the manner, and all circumstances of our death. O my soul, said St. Francis de Sales, Thou must one day part from with this body, but when shall that day be? Shall it be in winter or in summer? Shall it be in the city or the country, by day or by night? Shall it be suddenly or unnoticed given to you? Shall you have leisure to make your confession? Will you have the assistance of a spiritual father? Alas, of all this, you know nothing at all. The only certain thing is that you must die, and that as it almost always happens, much sooner than you imagine. Mm. (laughs) It's pretty sober. Consider thirdly, the death being so uncertain, and the time of manner of of death being so certain, and the time or manner of it being so uncertain, it would be no small comfort if a man could die more than once, so that if he should have the misfortune to die at all, he might repair the fault by taking more care a second time. So it's like saying, all right, you didn't mess it up the first time. It'd be nice if you get a do-over. So wouldn't it be great? Okay. Wouldn't it be great if you had, if you messed up, oh, well, I did, messed it up that time. Let me, let me fit, do it right the second time. He says, but alas, we can die but once. And when once we have set our foot within the gates of eternity, there's no coming back. If we die well once, it will always be well. But if once ill, it will be ill for all eternity. O oh, dreadful moment upon which depends our endless eternity, O oh, blessed Lord, prepare us for that fatal hour. Consider fourthly the folly and stupidity of the greatest part of men, who though they daily see some or other of their friends, acquaintances, or neighbors carried off by death, and that very often in the vigor of their youth, very often by sudden death, yet always imagine death to be at a distance far from them. As if these arrows of death, which are falling on all sides of them, would not in their turn reach him too. Or as if they had a greater security than so many others who were daily swept away. Senseless worldlings, why will you not open your eyes? Why will you fondly imagine yourself secure from the stroke of death when you cannot even promise yourself so much as a single day of life? How many will die before the end of this month that are as young, strong, and healthy as you are? Who knows, but you may be one of the number. Ah, Christians, take care lest you be surprised. Set your house in order. And for the future, fly from sin, the only evil 
which makes death terrible. Live always in those dispositions in which you would gladly be found at the hour of your death. To act otherwise is to renounce both, is renounce both religion and reason. So I could go on. I could read this all day long. This, this, this is powerful stuff. So, but uh, boy, what a what a what a, what a splash of cold water in the face to think about this. I mean, I, I remember giving this to my mother. She was in her eighties, and she said, "Why doesn't anybody talk about this? This is so important. This is we should be talking about this stuff all the time about death." And uh, you know, even in churches, people people act as if it's never going to happen, or it's oh, it's a surprise. Well, how do you how do you like that? Somebody died. Well, this is it's going to happen to all of us. Uh, so after that introduction here I want to, I want to take a look at a sobering challenge to be prepared for death and take a look at what happens after we die and I want to uh, like in, in anything I think it's always good to start with what did Jesus teach start with what did Jesus teach how did the apostles understand that how did the church put the pieces together in the beginning <clears throat> John chapter 5 let's turn there Starting in verse 25, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. In which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So uh, it says, all those who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. So imagine, imagine you're walking past the graveyard when this happens. This is people are going to be coming out of the graves. That's what he's saying. All those who are in the graves, who's in the grave? It's the body. The bodies are going to be physically resurrected. Now, there are some people who believed in the resurrection of the body at the time of Jesus, and there's some who didn't. And Jesus made it very clear. Yes, this, here, here's what's going to happen. All who are in their graves will hear his voice, that they'll hear the, the voice of the Son of Man. As Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Someday he's going to say, everybody out, everybody up. This is it. He's going to call all people, all of the dead, out of their graves. Uh, very uh, disturbing, but uh, disturbing and exciting thought, <laughs> both, both at the same time. So, uh, Matthew chapter twelve. What's what's going to happen after we die? So we'll look at we'll look at the pieces first, and we'll we'll put them all together. One of my favorite verses in in Gospel of Matthew. There's so much in here, right here. Matthew chapter 12. So we we go here frequently. There's so much to mine from this. Matthew 12:38. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." But he answered and said to them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given." except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. 
The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So, a couple things to notice. One is, he talks about judgment as happening at one on one day for the queen of the south. That's the queen of Sheba, who lived a thousand years before. And he talks about the men of Nineveh, which is in the time of Jonah, which was several hundred years before him, and the people of his own generation. So people from all different periods of time are going to be there at the day of judgment, all gathered together. So the picture is there's one day of judgment where all will be gathered together. So the idea that when you die, you get judged immediately is refuted by Jesus pretty clearly right here. Now, the other thing that, that uh, you, you might have noticed here is question, we'll, 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 talk in, we'll take a look at this later. We'll say, what's, what happened to Jesus when he died? And here he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, Where was Jesus when he died? His body was in the tomb. It was in the grave. It's in a, in a little cave, right? Where did his spirit go? Jesus says, in the heart of the earth. And he, he's pointing back at the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah, Jonah is in the whale, and he's crying out, and basically it's a prophecy. He's crying out. He says, I am in the depths of Sheol, or if you're reading it in the Septuagint in the Greek, he says, I'm in Hades. Get me out of here. So he's, he's speaking figuratively. He's borrowing from the language of the Psalms. So Jesus says, just as John was three days and three nights in, in, in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Does that sound like heaven? No, I don't think so. Okay, so where did Jesus go between the time that he was buried and the time that he was resurrected? Heart of the earth is how he expresses it here. That's what says. That's where he went. So uh, he, he, he ascended to heaven later, but that's, that's not where he was during that period of time. Um, Matthew 25 and the story of the sheep and the goats is it, completely consistent with what he says here about there being one day of judgment when all are judged. Mm-hmm. Matthew 25 is all about being prepared for the end. And what's it going to take to be prepared for the end when he comes? Matthew chapter 25, starting verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And uh, and let's skip down at verse 41. He says, Then he'll say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And uh, and he says, he concludes there, uh, 
uh, in verse uh, 46, these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to everlasting life. So this is the same picture. Day of judgment, all the nations gathered, separated sheep and the goats. One will go to everlasting uh, life, eternal life, the righteous, and the wicked will go to everlasting punishment. So there's, there's one day of judgment, and then people are sentenced at that point in time. So that's completely consistent with what he says in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, also, I think about in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is speaking to the church in Smyrna, and he says in verses 10 and 11, he says, Don't be afraid of the things that you're about to suffer. The devil's about to throw some of you in prison to test you when you're going to go through tribulation. He says, Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Okay, the second death. So what's that referring to? The second death is, I think it's referring to clearly, this is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. It's a day of judgment where he said, don't worry about the first death. Okay, he says, I've got that one. You need to worry about the second death. You don't, you, you don't, those who overcome in this life, even though they see death, will not have to be concerned with the second death. That's the people who are, those who are thrown into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. So that's the, that's the death we need to concern. There's a, there's, a, there's a second death beyond the first one after the day of judgment. Okay, now let's turn to Luke, Luke 16. We can't talk about what happens after you die without talking about the story of the rich man Lazarus. Let's go there. Luke 16. Starting in verse 19. Jesus tells the story, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those uh, from, from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let him listen to them. And he says, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade it, though one rises from the dead. Obviously, referring to himself. They're not going to listen to the word of God. They're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets. Even if someone was to rise from the dead, they wouldn't listen to him either. Yeah. So that, that's not the problem. The problem is not enough evidence. The problem is that God hasn't spoken to them. Okay, that they haven't been sent a warning. The problem is that they don't want to listen. That's the problem. So what do we learn about what happens after you die? Well, there's a few things. It says, verse 22, 
the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So this is the picture is that the person, when they die, that their spirit is escorted by the angels to, to what to the next place, okay? Uh, it said the rich man died and was buried, and, was, and, and he ends up being tormented in Hades. So well, what is Hades? We'll, 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 we'll put the pieces together for a minute. So he's in Hades. He's not in the lake of fire. He's not in hell. This is a completely different, different word, different place. So he's, he's, he's in Hades, and um, there's a great gulf. So there are two different regions that can see each other. There's a great gulf between the two, and Abraham and Lazarus are on one side, and I'm sorry, Abraham and Lazarus are on one side where the righteous are, and then the rich man is, is on the other side, and he's in torment. So there, there are two regions of this space where the dead are, are carried. Um, <clears throat> Now let's take a look at Luke 23. <clears throat> After we look at all these pieces, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at how they, they fit together. <clears throat> Luke 23, let's look at what happened to Jesus himself at the time of his death. Luke 23, verse 39. And one of the criminals were hanged uh, who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you were under some, the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, now, I heard, I heard a lesson recently where somebody said, well, there you go. Jesus says he's going to be in heaven with him that day. So he's going to go straight to heaven with Jesus. And actually, Jesus didn't say he'd be with him in heaven. He said he'd be in paradise. So, is our, so first question is, paradise and heaven, are they the same place? You know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Let's, 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 so, so Jesus says, you're going to be with me today in paradise, whatever that means. If he's going to be with him in heaven that day, what's with the day of judgment? Okay, so is, is Jesus saying, you're going to be with heaven, you're going to be in heaven with me, and then you don't have to go through the day of judgment, or you're going to be in heaven with me, but then you're going to have to take a little vacation, leave yeah. heaven, be judged, and then come back <laughs> up again. Okay, so what's with that? I'm just, trying, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here. How do, we, how do we put these pieces together? So what do we do with the day of judgment? What do we do with... Uh, uh, you know, if he's going to go to heaven immediately, uh, what what what's what's how does how does this fit together? And uh, and then after that, let's continue. Verse forty four. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, "Father, into your hands I commend my spirit." Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So Jesus breathed his last. He says his, his dying words in, in this gospel are, into your hands I commend my spirit. Okay. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. So after Jesus expired, when he said, into your hands I commend my spirit, where did he go? So he said, 
In Matthew 12, he'd be in the heart of the earth. And let's look at what Peter says where he was in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is raised from the dead. Luke, Luke is the author of Luke and Acts. And in the, in the end of the Gospel of Luke, we have, the resur- we have the death of Jesus, we have the resurrection of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1, the ascension of Jesus and the heavenly apostles see him ascending. And Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit comes down. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then here he quotes Psalm 16, or the Septuagint numbered Psalm 15, <clears throat> says, I foresaw the Lord before my, always before my face, He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you that the patriarch David He's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, the fruit of his body according to his flesh, he'd raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. His soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So, so he says, he's quoting, he says, David said, the Lord said, he said, uh, I foresaw the Lord before me. You will not uh, leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. So he said, look, this David speaking, couldn't couldn't refer to David himself because his body is dead and decayed long since, had to refer to the son of David. David was speaking as a prophet on behalf of his seed. So this is referring to Jesus. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not leave my soul in Hades. Where did Jesus' spirit go when he died? Jesus said it went to the heart of the earth. Here Peter says it was in Hades. That's where Jesus went when he died. But he didn't remain in Hades. When you die, you go to Hades. This is the abode of the dead waiting for the day of final judgment. But he he would go there, but he wouldn't remain there. He'd be taken out. And so, so we see in the life of Jesus, so Hades, he refers to Hades, Peter refers to Hades here. If you look back in Psalm 16, in the, in the Hebrew, it's Sheol, same, same word, two different languages, Hades, Sheol, the abode of the dead. It's a temporary waiting place for the dead, waiting final judgment. Uh, so we put the pieces together and you think about Jesus' life. All right, so Jesus' life starts off, you know, let's go through the, the Gospel of Mark, one of the other Gospels. He's, he's baptized, he's tempted by Satan, he goes through a life of, uh, that, that ends with a great deal of suffering, 
in his life. Remember in 1 Peter, we're talking about the sufferings of Christ and the glory of the follower. It's, it's the pattern that we're supposed to follow in this life. So in Hebrews, it talks about he was made perfect. He was refined, made complete through suffering. So he suffered. He died. His body was buried. His soul departed and went to Hades. This is what happened to him, but it doesn't remain in Hades. On the third day, the spirit comes back into the body, and his body is the, the body and the spirit are reunited. His body is transformed, and he comes up out of the grave. It's the same body. His body is resurrected. And, you know, in, in, in the story of the, the doubting Thomas, he says, stick your fingers in my hands, put your hand in my side, just see that it's me, I have flesh and bones, it's not a ghost. It was his body that was resurrected and transformed. His spirit came back into his body. So that's, that's what happened to Jesus. And then, Acts chapter 1, he ascends bodily, he ascends into heaven. So this is, this is the pattern of Jesus' life, which will, which will uh, have great significance as we look at an explanation of the early Christians here. I want to take a look in Acts chapter 7. This was a, because I was, I was listening to a lesson where somebody said, well, they were trying to prove that you go straight to heaven after you die. And uh, they pointed the example of Stephen. And Stephen, of course, gets stoned. And at the end, right before he gets stoned, um, Acts chapter 7, 54, at the end of his speech, says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth as the Sanhedrin. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the eyewitnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Obviously referring to the died here. So the point that was made in the lesson I was listening to was he said, well, look, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Obviously he's in heaven. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So he said, well, obviously if Jesus received the spirit, he went straight up to heaven. But let's think about that. <clears throat> what did Jesus say right before he died? We read that in Luke. Luke's writing it. Same, same one thing. Luke is writing this. He's, Jesus said before he died, into your hands I commend my spirit. He's speaking to God. He's commending his spirit to God also. Did Jesus go straight to heaven? No, he didn't. He didn't go straight to heaven. He ended up there eventually, but he didn't go there right away. He went, he went to Hades. He went to Hades. On the third day, he was his body resurrected and ascended to heaven. So that doesn't prove the fact that he says, Lord, receive my spirit, doesn't mean he went straight to heaven at all. It, does, it says nothing about that. Jesus said the same thing, and he didn't go there. And in Stephen's story, we're introduced to another character, uh, Saul, a.k.a. Paul. That's right. So Saul is introduced there, too. Let's turn to, see what the apostles say. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We started with that. I want to read a little further than we did last time. So here's what Paul taught. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should not overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you were also doing. So this is the picture here, is that Jesus is going to return, the dead will be raised, and the living and the dead will be, those who are faithful will be, will be, will be gathered up to him. So that's, I mean, presuming that's after, that's after judgment. So that's, that's, the, that's the picture here is we see that, that Jesus comes back, the dead are raised, everybody is judged, and then those who are righteous are, 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 going, are going with him. Uh, so... Uh, and there, there are a lot more details that we could talk about regarding specifically what happens to you after you die. The fact that we will have bodies, well, what, what does that imply and what does that mean? That God, you know, a lot of people's attitude is, well, God just wants to save the spirit. The body is of no consequence. Well, in the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, and he's the forerunner to showing what's going to happen to us. That's the whole idea is that in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about those who, that Jesus is the, the forerunner. That he shows us what we have to look forward to. He's the he's the path breaker for us. Uh, so ha, now, how did the early Christians put these pieces together? And I want to read from uh, a few selections of the earliest Christian writers. What do they say about what happens after you die? And the most important question is when you hear what they believed. Is this consistent with all the scriptures? If what, they're, if what they, they believe contradicts the scriptures, then you can dismiss it. But some of them had the advantage of being very close to the time of the apostles. And so they were you know, taught by people who were personally taught by the apostles in some cases. So Justin Martyr, in, uh, who's writing around the year 160 in Anticene Fathers, volume 1, page 197, he says, The souls of the godly remain in a better place while those of the unjust and wicked are in a worse place, waiting for the time of judgment. That's Obviously, that's just like what it says in Luke 16. Uh, Justin Martyr again. He says, Christ's enemies imagined that they would put him to death and that he, like some common mortal, would remain in Hades. So 
Hades. The enemies thought we're going to kill him and he'll remain in Hades. But no, he didn't remain in Hades. He went there, but then he left after three days. Just, just like the prophecy said. Uh, <clears throat> this is from Irenaeus. Irenaeus is interesting to me because Irenaeus was... Uh, he grew up in Asia Minor, I think in Smyrna. He learned at the feet of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So this is somebody who's one human link removed from one of the apostles, the last apostle to die. So, so, and here's what he said. The Lord has taught with very great fullness that souls continue to exist. They do not do this by passing from body to body. Rather, they preserve the same form as that of the body to which they were adapted. The Lord states the rich man recognized Lazarus after death as well as Abraham. From these things, then, it is plainly declared that souls continue to exist. They do not pass from body to body. They possess the form of a man so they may be recognized, and they retain the memory of things in this world. Moreover, it's plain that the gift of prophecy was possessed by Abraham, and each class receives a habitation such as it deserves even before the judgment. So... <laughs> He continues, he says, the heretics do not acknowledge the salvation of their flesh. Okay, so he's saying that these the, the people who, they believe in Jesus, but they're heretics, that they don't believe that the, that the flesh is going to be saved. But they claim immediately upon death they will pass above the heavens and the demiurge, the creator, and go to the mother or that father whom they pretend to exist. They do not choose to understand that if these things are as they say, so he's saying the heretics believe you go straight to heaven. Okay, you, the, you, nothing. Your body's irrelevant. You just pass straight on to heaven. So he says they choose not to understand that if these things are as they say, the Lord Himself, in whom they profess to believe, so these are people who claim to be Christians, did not rise again upon the third day. Rather, immediately upon His expiring on the cross, He undoubtedly departed on high, leaving His body on the earth. Saying, "Well, if that's the case, these people they believe in Jesus." Then I'm sure, I'm sure they believe that Jesus, when he died, his spirit went straight to heaven. Okay? The Lord observed the law of the dead so that he might become the first begotten of the dead. And he waited until the third day in the lower parts of the earth. These men, the Gnostics, must be put to confusion who allege that the lower parts of this world are our, refer to this world of ours, but the inner man leaving the body here ascends to the upper celestial place. He's saying the heretics said that Jesus' spirit went straight to heaven. He says, no, it went to, went to the lower parts. He's referring to the, the, the heart of the earth. He's referring to Hades. It says, the Lord went away into the midst of the shadow of death where the souls of the dead were. However, afterwards he arose in the body. After the resurrection, he was taken up to heaven. From this, it's clear that the souls of his disciples also upon whom the account of their Lord underwent these things, will go away to the invisible place allotted to them by God. And they will remain there until the resurrection awaiting that event. <clears throat> then receiving their bodies and rising in their entirety, that is bodily, just as the Lord arose, they will come in that manner into the presence of God. So, I mean, what he's saying here agrees with everything in the scripture, but he's putting the pieces together. Here's somebody who was taught by a personal disciple, the Apostle John. So this is in, he's writing around the year 180. This is Anicene Fathers, volume 1, page uh, 560. Now, I love, love this next quote here. He says, he's making an interesting application of something that Jesus said. He says, no disciple is above his master. That's what Jesus said, right? 
Our master, therefore, did not at once depart taking flight to heaven. Rather, he awaited the time of his resurrection as determined by the Father. Likewise, we also should await the time of our resurrection determined by God. So he says, hey, you're not, no servant is above his master. No student is above his master. The master himself, when he died, his spirit went into Hades before the Father resurrected him, restored his body, and then he ascended into heaven. What are the obvious implications for us? He led the way for us. We're not going to short circuit and die and go straight to heaven. Said so the same thing is what we should be expecting ourselves. There, there are more quotes in here. I, I don't have time to, 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 uh, uh, to, to read. I'll read one more. All right. This is from Lactantius. I can't help it. Sorry. Lactantius writing a letter a little later. This is the early 300s. This is an Nicene Fathers, volume 7, page 217. I encourage you, Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, an article on dead, intermediate state of the. Read the quotes there and then ask yourself the question. This is Brousseau's Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. Ask yourself the question, is this exactly line up with what all the scriptures teach, what they, what they believe? And they're all teaching the same thing in all different parts of the world. So Lactantius says, let no one imagine souls are immediately judged after death. Now how's that for a, a, a wishy-washy statement? Okay. For all are detained in one and a common place of confinement until the arrival of the time in which the great judge will make an investigation into their desserts. This is not talking about what you eat after dinner. This is talking about how you lived your life, okay? <laughs> those, who have, those whose piety will have been approved will receive the reward of immortality. However, those whose sins and crimes will be brought to light, those will not rise again. Rather, they will be hidden in the same darkness with the wicked, being destined to certain punishments. So this is, uh, and, and, and I, I'm just cherry-picking quotes. You can read through this whole section yourself. But you think about this, it makes sense. And I really like what what, uh, what Irenaeus said. He said, student's not above his, his master. Jesus obeyed the laws. He was, he was fully human, and he had to undergo all the things that we have to undergo. He just did it in advance. So if you want to know what's going to happen to us, Look what happened to Jesus. If we're following him, the same thing is going to happen to us. All right? It's going to take a little more than three days probably for us to be resurrected, but, uh, but this, it's the same pattern. So uh, with that in view here, thinking about this, this is what happens. So Susan asked me the question, where is Chris now? Where is Chris Traganos now? And... Uh, you know, who am I to answer that question? I would say, I would say, uh, based on what Jesus said and the apostles say, he's he's in a place of waiting. Okay, this was their understanding. This was Jesus taught with the story of the rich man Lazarus, in a place of waiting. This is where Jesus himself did. He went to a place of waiting. He didn't go straight to heaven. He went to Hades, heart of the earth. So he's in a place of waiting. Whether heart of the earth is figurative or literal, I have no idea, but that's, that's a term that's used, and sometimes poetic language is used in scriptures, like sleep. So he is waiting in a place for final judgment. And is also there's an indication that people can recognize each other. So he's probably waiting for us to show up, too. So he's, he got there first. He graduated from here first, but he's in a waiting place Awaiting the day when Jesus will call all of the great, all the dead out of their graves, including him, our bodies and spirits will be 
reunited and we will face the Lord and we'll, we'll all see the day of judgment together. So uh, I remember Chris as a regular guy. I like love that about Chris. He was a regular guy. There was no... There was no glitz, there was no polish, there was no pretense, whatever. It's what you saw was what you got. And that's I love that about Chris. Chris was a man who was very devoted to his family. Mm-hmm. He loved Susan. He loved Adam. He's very devoted to his sons. A man of very high integrity. I saw that from just not just interacting with him, but also working with him. And then being close to Chris as a special gift to me to be close to to Chris at, at, at the very end of his life and talk talking to him more personally at the end of his life. Chris was an overcomer. He came from a tough background, very rough background, but he was an overcomer. He was a fighter. He was a struggler. And the thing I really appreciate about Chris that's an upward call to me is Chris finished strong. He finished at the top of his game. A lot of people are zealous in the beginning of their life as Christians, and then they kind of they get, you know, they get choked out, and they and they get they their their commitment gets watered down. They become lukewarm. Chris was somebody who, the last last years of his life, he was he was going up, he was ascending the mountain, he was going higher, he was working, he was working his salvation out with fear and trembling, and he he was growing. So he 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 died at the top of his game spiritually, and may all of us see the same uh, 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 end to, 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 to our own lives. And I remember uh, we were listening to a lesson that, that Peter, uh, the, I'm sorry, we are listening that Chris gave uh, this last week where, where he was talking about the crucifixion of Peter and the historic accounts of the crucifixion of Peter. And when he was, was urging his wife, based on the historic accounts, to say, remember the Lord, he was encouraging her to stay strong to the end, even though she was going to be tortured and killed, he wanted her to stay strong. And I think that meant a lot to Chris. And that's the kind of heart that Chris had. That he, I think he, he wanted people to have that same spirit. I think Chris identified with Peter. He's a regular guy. And he was, he was an unschooled and ordinary man. And uh, uh, a blue-collar guy. And uh, but he, I remember him saying that that as, as, as his wife was about to be executed, remember the Lord. He was encouraging her to stay strong. And I think that uh, Chris, the Chris, judgment's in God's hands. But I think in, knowing Chris pretty well, I think he's he's uh, he's he's in a good place, uh, uh, awaiting final judgments, and that uh, those of us who are next to graduate. We'll, we'll probably see and recognize him if the early Christian understanding is right, and based on what it's saying, what's, what it says in, uh, in Luke 16, uh, awaiting the, the glorious day of final judgment when we can fully be with the Lord. So uh, I'm sure this would generate a lot of questions and discussions, but there's, there's no way I could exhaustively uh, treat this subject, but I wanted to open it up and show you from the Scriptures. Okay, this is what Jesus taught this is how the apostles understood it. This is how the early Christians put the pieces together. And I encourage you to go and, and study this for yourself and, and, and really get your own convictions about this. Amen. Amen.